Welcome to Creativity Unleashed, the podcast for creatives by creatives. Our guest today, Nick Lowry, is the truest definition of a multi-hyphenate. He's an NFL star who was inducted into the Kansas City Chiefs Hall of Fame as the most accurate kicker in NFL history. Having received his MPA from Harvard University, he worked for President Ronald Reagan in the drug abuse policy and Presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton in the White House Office of National Service, helping launch both the Points of Light Foundation and AmeriCorps. On top of it all, he founded Champions for the Homeless, which supports the St. Vincent de Paul shelter and serves those facing housing insecurities. Nick has also appeared in or on Sports Illustrated, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Late Show with David Letterman, MSNBC, CNBC, and more. On today's episode of Creativity Unleashed, Nick and I discuss the importance of gratitude, resilience, mentors in our lives, and finding a greater purpose beyond ourselves. Hi, Nick. Nice to see you. What an honor. What a pleasure, man. You are um, not only a Hall of Fame athlete, scholar, uh, you know, advised four presidents of the United States, all the philanthropy work that you do, inspiring youth and Aboriginal Native communities. Uh, when we met, I was just so honored to meet you, and I knew I was in the presence of greatness. I felt it, and uh, and the first things you said to me confirmed that for me, just that your mission was to bring more light into the world and, and make the world a better place. So I really want to thank you for being here. Well, thank you, and um, the feeling's mutual. It really is. And thank you. I do have a little bit of a insight into just a little bit into the kind of commitment and hard work it takes to make great films and to tell great stories. So, uh, and also the courage and the persistence to get funding for things that aren't immediately in the, if you will, commercial treadmill of traditional Hollywood and filmmaking and just say, this is important and we're going to do it even if no one else will. So, Kudos to you for that level of commitment. Um, there's a certain certain purity of commitment that's uh, beautiful to see. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Let's go back in the way back machine a little bit. Take us back to, I know you were born in Germany. Uh, I don't know how much you want to get into how you were brought up and your dad, and uh, but you know, feel free to share whatever whatever you can to give us some context of where this greatness might, might've come from. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, 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 let's come up with a better word than greatness because I think that feeds ego, but thank you. Um, but certainly born in Germany, my dad was, my dad was a reconnaissance pilot for, uh, in Germany, the last six months of the war for general Patton's third army flew 32 missions in an unarmored Piper cub at 3000 feet, calling in the big shells right into where he was. He lost two of his friends because the shells hit, their planes while they were doing it. So it was very dangerous. And he saw the importance of intelligence. And we know now without the intelligence gathering during World War II, we could easily have lost World War II, whether it was developing the nuclear weapons sooner than Hitler did, whether it was just technology, whether it was troop movements, etc. So my father was in his early years um, uh, as an expert on Eastern Europe and um, Germany, Russia, uh, when we were living in Munich when I was born, I only lived there for a year. But when people see Germany, they think I'm German. Um, ironically, my mother, who was in the first full class of women at Oxford, uh, studied Deutsch and was literally spoke literally the best German in England. So her job with women's intelligence in the Women's Royal Navy, the Wrens, 
was he finished number one at uh, until officers intelligence school was to decode and and uh, translate german messages and then she was sent in to question uh, hitler's record keepers in berlin and minden just outside berlin right after the war and because she spoke such beautiful german um, she said the German record keepers, fresh from firebombing, you know, and just total destruction of not only Berlin, but uh, so much of Germany, uh, you'd think they were bitter, but they fell over themselves helping her. And uh, the story I only learned five years ago, Sergio, which is I want to share with the audience, uh, the reality of storytelling is my mother was sent in before the end of the war, before she went to Berlin, to document the German death camps. Wow. And so she was there and she never told her children, but she told Father David McElhenney, who also had gone to Oxford, who is my mentor at Dartmouth College. And he finally told me five years ago this story. And then I saw him again last summer. And and part of the, the story is that here she was presenting film and photo, pho, photography of this horrendous, I mean, one of the worst atrocities in the history of civilization, if not the worst and yet seeing people just not willing to accept it, not willing to believe it. And so there's wow. the other side of the coin. There's the rub, if you will, that um, we tell stories, we put out great energy, but not everybody's going to re be receptive to it. And uh, But my father would go on to become chief of station in London wow. um, uh, when I was 10, playing soccer. 10 hours a day and going to one of the oldest schools in England, St. Paul's School. Never found out that my father, I knew my father was CIA. I didn't know he was chief of station until literally at his funeral, two of his retired operatives, uh, Molly and Atirboff, who's since gone, who was actually the head of station in uh, Lebanon back in the 80s. Uh, and another friend said, your father wasn't senior. Your dad was the man. Uh, and so I just admire that level of service because uh, I think so much of the narrative that you and I are going to be sharing today is the mentality of gratitude, which in American Thanksgiving week is so important, and service, which is you know so much connected to that. The idea of uh, really, I see myself, Sergio, as carrying the baton of John F. Kennedy's, you know, one of the greatest lines in the history of our country. Ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country and what that means to each of us is different but it's certainly look at the historical chapters that are unwritten and do something about it so i may be 65 but i feel like i'm 25 just getting started all of these references uh working for president clinton uh, working on americorps getting americorps passed uh working on the points of light foundation working for the american indian education foundation which became known as the national fund they are all, to me, connected to unfinished chapters in American uh, culture and history. You know, mm -hmm. the fact that you don't have to be a military person to serve your country is a, one big example. Give kids a chance to serve, as we will tomorrow, a thousand homeless in Phoenix. And at the age of 9 and 10 and 11, their service uh, may transform not only somebody else's life and their sense of hope, but also their own and the addiction to the only healthy thing in life, which is to make a difference and to know it, not just think it, not to be intended to do it, but to actually know you're making a difference. It transforms everything in your life. When you pursued professional sports, how did you perceive it? Because um, the way I see it now as an outsider is like you're gladiators. Like when I go back to Pompeii and I see the, the auditorium, they were doing the same thing. Right. I mean, a little more brutal and violent, yeah. but 
essentially it was a form of entertainment and, and you're giving people a release, you know, from, from yeah. their daily lives or whatever. When you stepped on that field, what was going on in your mind? Well, I would say, first of all, I played high school basketball, college baseball. Uh, I was intramural champion in tennis. All those things were references. I've always been fascinated by the link between your mind, your ability to focus, what you focus on, and your body and that relationship. And no position in sports, you could argue, is more absolutely distilled in that level of pressure and focus and link between the, what you do with your head and what you do with your body than the kicker in the NFL. You That's only right. have 1.27 seconds. The ball is snapped back eight yards. It's 24 feet. Wow. Spiraling, caught, put down, spun, and kicked in 1.27 seconds or faster over 11 people averaging probably three, four, five, ten million dollars a year paid to kill you or at least block your <laughs> kick. You know, some of them six, 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 seven with 36 inch arms and and 40 inch vertical leaps. And so you got to get it up and over these this wall, but I love the analogy, you know, that the field goal becomes, if you will, sort of like the effort to put something through a greater purpose, which are the goalposts in life. So for me, running out, I was my own uh, individual gladiator um, and having to, you know, contribute and help my team. And so how I prepared, how I organized my thoughts and my body so that I wasn't surprised when it did come down to me. I, I think in 1990, I saw statistics, uh, guy, people send me cards to sign. And one of my best seasons was 1990 when I led the National Football League in scoring. And um, I had 14 field goals that were go-ahead field goals that were that put our, our team ahead um, in the score. And um, what a great feeling that is to help your team. And... Uh, it's also such discipline because you're running out in front of 78,000 screaming fans in Arrowhead Stadium uh, that uh, set a world record 134 decibels a couple years ago. Or you're going to the black hole in Oakland, which is now Las Vegas. Or you go to New England or Buffalo or uh, you know the Broncos and then Mile High Stadium. And they're cheering and jeering you as well. You're standing on the sidelines managing how you are thinking, hopefully having done that internal work so that you don't mind the fact that within 150, 200 feet are 10,000 people that are within earshot of you, and a few of them are, are saying very sweet lullabies to you, <laughs> intending you to, knock, to knock you off your game. Imagine if you're shooting a movie and around behind the cameras while the actors are trying to perform what is their role people are yelling at them trying to distract them and, and make them forget their lines i mean imagine what that would be like that would be an interesting reality show yeah right and so um the gladiator is uh certainly physical but it's also being a mental gladiator and so i feel blessed because those skill sets sergio um, mentally help me be better, even though I'm terrible with technology, as you saw. I put, I've become, like I said, like a, I want to be a serial killer of all software designers. So watch out and start designing <laughs> software for us. But, uh, but it also helps me um, do the battle. So many of the, war, the wars that we have right now are existential wars. I mean, you could call them battle of good versus evil, and it requires phenomenal spiritual persistence and something that, that you understand, which is creativity. So 
I'm very talkative today, but I would say that the gladiator for me at this stage of my life is that I see so clearly that the spiritual part of us that keeps us going to a purpose that really helps the world and the creative part are right there in our brains and feeding one feeds the other. Mm, right. And so whatever your story is, you know, being able to, to overcome it requires phenomenal creativity. So to me, the work is often, if we can help young people, whether they're Native American kids that we work or Aboriginal, as we call them, or First Nations in Canada, use their creativity. It Number one, it helps them transcend uh, the bias and the racism because now it's their power and their God-given gifts. And the creativity then becomes literally um, a focal point in their brain to create new avenues around the trauma, the trauma which is like a huge bruise or wound or scar in their brain and in their social and spiritual makeup. I get emotional talking about this because I think all of us have this. And uh, tomorrow when we do Champions for the Homeless, you know, just being able to communicate that they still always have the power to create a new narrative, a new pathway where there is light, where there is hope. Um, and usually for me, reminding myself I can help one person every day. And if everybody reminds themselves of that, sometimes it's helping yourself and forgiving yourself. Um, you maintain your power, you maintain some hope and you keep going. And most of it is keeping on going when no one else would. Mm, that's so beautiful. And I had a suspicion that, um, you know, as, as you're, as you hone that discipline to get, you know, the most field goals in NFL history, you were able to transfer that skill into not only other sports, but into life. And so my, my curiosity or the reason I'm here to serve is to share that information with young emerging artists that might be struggling. How do you, in the, yes. in the chaos of life, you know, chaos may be in your home, maybe in your family, in your relationship, could be financial, could be societal in the midst of chaos. How do you, because, you know, you use the analogy on a film set, nobody would tolerate noise. There's actors that would walk <laughs> off and just say, I'm not dealing with this. See you later. Right. Um, but an athlete has to put up with it. The heckling, the this, the that. And what you don't see on Instagram is the mental game or the mental exercise, the discipline that it takes. It's not just the Ferraris and going to the gym because that's what Instagram tells us. But I'm curious about the other part. So what what did you have a ritual or did you have mentors that helped you through that? So so this is where you come in, my friend, because you are an existential mentor. Uh, I, I love the book by the poet Robert Bly, one of America's great poets of the 20th century in 1990-91 wrote a book called Iron John and in it he talks about how there is a dwindling um, image of the mentor and the elder which in aboriginal culture certainly is always revered in Asian culture it's revered it's not so right now it's not being revered here and it's so important to to create that wonderful relationship that in almost all of the great movies Star Wars mm you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and, Rocky. and all the different <laughs> Rocky, right? All of these different movies, there's an elder figure who helps tweak that person's wound or trauma so that they can run up the steps, mm. uh, if you will, for Rocky in Philadelphia so they can uh, get back up when they have been knocked out. Um, 
So yeah, the um, the mentor figure is everything. And I was, I don't know why, but I always had this magnet. I was so lucky. And I guess other mentors noticed it in me that I really wanted mm. it. So Dick Johnson, who was a retired stockbroker, who was the first, one of the first great season ticket sellers for Mr. Marshall, the owner of the then Washington Redskins. We called them the Redskins then. Uh, we won't judge that uh, right now because it's over. But um, he was a mentor for me and he just, he had died uh, on his deathbed and woken up, how about this story, to a young man he hadn't thought of in 55 years, 60 years. He stood at the foot of his bed and said, Dick, you were there when no one else would stand up for me when I was 10 years old. You were the only one that would protect me and uh, you saved my life and I'm here now to save yours. You're going to be okay. And he told me that story in one of the first days he ever started coaching me. This guy had never been a kicker, but he understood the mental side and he just began to break it down and became a phenomenal coach in every sense and was always filled with gratitude that he'd been given a second mm -hmm. life, a second chance. And then there was Gary Gardner and Brooks Johnson, who was the Olympic sprint coach uh, who was there at St. Albans. Uh, then there was David McElhoney, the one I told you about, who told me about my mother um, not telling any of her children that she had uh, been sent in to document the German death camps. Um, wow. So those mentors meant everything to me. And, and then maybe one of the greatest of, of all was John Rassius. Uh, I won uh, Dartmouth's first President's Award with a bunch of other wonderful people uh, for leadership. And they asked us to do a book on mentors, uh, that we'd select one mentor at Dartmouth who'd meant the most. And so I was so lucky to choose John Rassius. And if you look him up, everybody that's watching, look him up. John Rassius, R-A-S-S-I-A-S, -S -S, uh, sort of like a living Jorba the Greek, who was asked by President John Kennedy, speaking of, ask not what your country can do for you, uh, the Peace Corps was emblematic of that, serving your country and serving other countries, saying we are all in this together and healing some very deep cultural wounds around the world and technology wounds, etc. And he was asked to create a rapid language learning method for all of the the uh, Peace Corps volunteers, and in 350,000 volunteers over 60 years, um, they've been taught in 43 languages in three weeks using the Rassius Rapid Learning Method, and then are sent out with some level of confidence to survive and to help and lead projects that would make those communities uh, around the world just a little bit better. And that man taught me something about language, which is he would give a speech where he would literally rip his shirt open and say, my job is to strip through all of these layers. I'm not going to rip my shirt, but I'm thinking about it. And he'd rip his shirt open because those are the layers that numb us to life, that, that create layers of division and separation between us and, and others. So he didn't look at language as words so much as starting with the attitude that my job is to uh, make myself transparent. Um, and this is how this affects everyone, uh, all the artists out there for sure. But think about this. Dartmouth just uh, won a share of the Ivy League championship last Saturday. And the head coach was my holder in, in college, Buddy Tevens. And you're probably thinking, how does this connect? Well, he's leading young men 
gladiators, if you will, in training, albeit at an Ivy League school. And because he went to a racist language learning program at Dartmouth, he knew that one of the biggest lessons his people could learn was don't just walk across campus like you're big man on campus, literally. When you see somebody who's totally different from you, whether it's at their dining hall sitting by themselves or just people that are from completely different backgrounds, those are the people I want you to go up and talk to. So they realize you're a human being and you realize they're human beings. And so imagine that effect when it's consistently led for four years with your head coach saying that's so important that you manage your success by reaching out across that discomfort of people that you don't know or understand necessarily mm. and build a bridge just by reaching out. So mentors mean everything. They help us affirm the deepest core values that we lead our lives by. And you're you're the embodiment of those paradigm shifts because people, when they think top athlete, well, he must be a jock and spend all his time in the gym and training and whatever, but you're, you're a modern day Renaissance man. So to that proves to, to people listening that some of those skills are transferable. So you can be great at football. You can also be great at business. You can, you know, so it's that, it's that discipline and having those mentors I think is, is key, right? Yeah. And it, and it's also then taking that skill to, to use it to help fuel your persistence because most of the lessons come just by failing. The Rassius method you could distill to saying, I expect you to screw up your subjunctive and your vocabulary and everything so many times that you know what not to do. You'll get to how to do it correctly, your pronunciation, everything. So to me, that is a great method for life to not fear failure because failure is simply the attempt to get better and to learn from it. So you create a, you know, a paradigm of constant learning and constant failing, but it's not, you know, we have this pejorative notion mm -hmm. of failure, but when we link it to learning, we link it to growth spiritually, mentally, physically, it's never a failure. And um, what I, what's helped me keep going after my NFL career is knowing that like in business, um, it's going to take a long time to learn how to do things correctly. And I hope um, another great mentor for me, Arthur Mayer, um, I'd like you guys to look him up. He was uh, taught the history of film at Stanford University and at Dartmouth. And at 93, Sergio, he was teaching the most popular class at Dartmouth in the spring with his 88-year-old wife, Millie, in the audience, um, telling these stories and the history of the development of film and major storytelling in this country. And I walked with him at the end of a lecture back to his home, and I did that a couple times, and he's making all these grunts, and, <laughs> you know, because he's 93, and he's walking kind of slow. But but his whole mentality was, Millie, how'd I do? And she'd go, well, you did this, right? But, you know, you missed that. You forgot that story, and you got that name wrong. And his thing was, his whole attitude was, I'll get it better tomorrow. Wow. And I hope when I'm 110, it'll still be, and I'm teaching at Dartmouth, it's I'll get it better tomorrow. I'll keep, I'm going to do my best to get it right now, but I'm going to get it better tomorrow too. Those are amazing stories to to listen to. And, you know, I, I was listening to a Kobe Bryant interview and Tom Brady, and they both said we weren't great. We didn't just come out great. You know, in fact, we knew these were our shortcomings and somebody was able to point them out. And you just fail and fail and fail until you don't anymore. And, and it's even the word failure is kind of, you know, there's so many negative connotations to it, but it's there is really no failure. It's just results. You know, you do this, this, and this, and then this happens. 
Yeah, the uh, the word sin is another example of how culture appropriateness uh, can change the real meaning. In the ancient Greek, sin, the translation was to fall short of the mark, like an arrow that's not quite on target as opposed to <laughs> right. you're going to hell. Black and white, you're going to hell. Um, and I think of Kobe Bryant as a great example because, you know, he had that horrendous accusation. And once again, what did he do with it? I mean, I'm not going to defend what happened, uh, although he was uh, found innocent. But the uh, what happened for him, the outcome was he grew up. He went from maybe a little entitled professional athlete or a lot entitled to being one of the great, you know, Mamba was yeah. his, his image because he shifted completely to, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to be a father, I'm a husband, I've got to do it better, I've got to take it to another level. And uh, we know from the brain, a lot of uh, people, uh, the frontal lobe doesn't fully develop in men until sometimes 25, 26, 27, they finally start getting it together. And if you look at Kobe Bryant's history, right about the age of 25, 26, and I'm lucky enough to call Michael Ray Wilbon, who's maybe the main... Um, NBA correspondent for ESPN, um, and so I've heard some background stories. Uh, there's a man that transformed his life. So imagine a would-be prisoner or an actual criminal that sees the wound, sees the crime, mm-hmm. and transforms and transcends it um, such that other people don't make the same mistake. You know, those are beautiful stories, and, and a lot of the greatest stories ever told on film, I would argue, are the person that had the great disappointment, the great crime, the great wound, the great mistake. That would yeah. be a great name for a movie. Yeah. The great mistake. And turned it into the best thing that ever happened to them. It's interesting, even within families themselves, when your back's up against the wall, some thrive and some, you know, retreat. And and sometimes we do both, depending on where we are in our life. You know, so it's interesting you know, the, I have friends in that kind of personal development world and it's all great when you're meditating and life is beautiful and everything's great. When life tests your mettle, when you go out into the world and try to implement, that's when you know if you've grown or not. And, and uh, you know, and, and sports is a great analogy for that. You're going to know where you're at as soon as you hit the field. Like you're going to know by your performance. That's the, those are the facts. And uh, what, um, what role did team um, the, the the notion of team play in your life, like when you're in the locker room and, you know, was was what others said to you or did you take on a leadership position? Tell me about the dynamics of that. And I know every team's different. As soon as you have a new coach, new players, changes the vibe, right? You know, I left out two amazing mentors. I mean, literally, I'd stand up my next door neighbors against anybody anywhere. I mean, think about it. I grew up next door to Byron Wizerwhite, Supreme Court Justice, best friends of Bobby Kennedy and John F. Kennedy, and um, who became a Supreme Court Justice for 31 years after leading the National Football League and rushing for two teams in three years and finishing number one at Yale Law School the same year he led the NFL in rushing for the uh, Detroit Lions. And I asked him, as I'd made it, what advice would you give me? He said, do your job. Shut up and do your job. That's where you gain respect. And as a kicker, that's kind of good advice (laughs) because you either make it or you don't. Excuses never, ever help. Just learn from it. Make sure you don't miss the next one. And then somehow, uh, 15 years ago, a guy named Muhammad Ali moved in next door to me. I mean, think about that. Wow. And even with Parkinson's, to watch 
his humanity and his love and his singular spiritual connection to all people and to see how people came uh, just unglued meeting him. Uh, I mean, I was at the NBA All-Star Game. I drove him there when it was here in Phoenix, but I don't know, 10 years ago now, I guess, and walked with him into the locker room and saw LeBron James and Yao Ming and Allen Iverson and all these famous basketball players like little kids around him. Um, but uh, that fame, it, you know, you talk about team, it's learning how to get over yourself uh, just the way Kobe, who certainly was crazy committed and crazy full of confidence, but he also knew how do I get the, the rookies to have the same level of commitment to want to get there at 5 a.m., to want to get there two hours before practice to shoot a 1,000 shots, you know, or after practice, and to have that level of complete and total commitment to your craft. Um, so Team, to me, another great book, um, A New Earth by Robert Bly, is always defining the choice of ego versus spirit. And so a lot of people think that ego is, uh, you know, all bad. It's not all bad. It helps us define our identity, helps us to measure ourselves against others. And when we're young, that's important. Uh, we want to say, I want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like that guy. But then we begin, hopefully, to make that transition to what is this about? What is this for? And how can I use the success so I share it with everyone around me? Because I had those empty moments um, when I made the NFL after beating out the greatest kicker in the history of the game. You understand, Root? I'm in Sports Illustrated. I'm on 2020 as, you know, the loneliest player in football, which you could argue a kicker is. Yep. And I go out to the, the Hawaiian um, Pro Bowl in Honolulu, kick the game-winning field goal in front of 17 Hall of Famers on my team. And the exhilaration of that, um, some great stories from that, by the way. And yet in the locker room afterwards, after the, you know, 20, 30 television cameras and interviews, as, as the locker room's emptying, I'm feeling this emptying here. I'm like, what's, mm. what's missing here? I got my best friend, but I didn't have my family. I didn't have my other friends. And so I resolved then, the next day, actually, it just became so clear. If I ever make it again, um, I'm going to make sure everybody that I care about is part of it. And so I kicked two more game-winning field goals in the Pro Bowl in Hawaii, but my wow. mom and dad were in the front row. My mom and dad were there after the game having dinner with me. And I had pictures of that, and I know we shared that. And that's another part of it is, as a filmmaker, the great analogy, right? You win the Oscar, you're on the mountaintop, and yet think about whether it's James Dean or others. Um, and of course, there's a show in Hollywood called 27. A friend of mine stars in it playing Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse, um, yep. Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Robert Johnson, and on and on, all these people at the height of their success died at 27. And so what are you going to do with the success so that you don't think, boy, I've done everything I aimed to achieve and I'm still miserable? Well, maybe there was a part mm -hmm. that you forgot to make sure it was part of that goal, which is when I get there, who am I sharing it with intentionally, not just at the last moment, but as I do it and when I do it so that it's always an energy that keeps growing because they then feel a, a taste of that as well. And they feel also um, a certain level of gratitude that you appreciate the role they had. So those relationships um, give birth 
to maybe inspiration for them as well and just that sense of a full circle of success that you didn't forget where you came from you didn't forget your your roots mm. what you describe is so common as well like people that performing at the highest level or that make it in Hollywood or make it to the NFL win the Super Bowl and then they're empty inside that is something that's been described over and over and over again and it's like I remember a quote that Jim Rohn had which was it's not about the goal it's about what it makes of you as a person mm -hmm. and so I don't know if it's a spiritual void I don't know if it's just not enjoying the journey before the the you know the final kick that wins it you know is that something that um, you struggled with and when did you figure it out? Well, I would say um, you got to come to love the journey. The journey is, and Kobe would say that many times, learning to love the work. Michael Jordan, learning to love the work. Um, Joe Montana, uh, one of the top quarterbacks of all time, uh, joined my team my last year with the Chiefs. And the lesson I got from him was I knew he would be amazing in games when the lights, the spotlight was on. But in practice, he was like a symphony conductor. Every pass was right on target. It was just a beautiful artistry and precision. Mm. Um, and then Marcus Allen, who I saw actually two weeks ago when the Chiefs played the Raiders in, in Vegas, you know, he had a great phrase, which is, act like you've been there before. And every time he would took a, took a simple run in practice, he'd run all the way another 50, 60, 80 yards to the end zone. So making sure that you love the work is so crucial because if you do, then you're, then you're setting it up for real success. Loving that process of challenging yourself to get better. My friend Summers Randolph, who's a great sculptor in Santa Fe, you know, he's got to look at this piece of marble and see the art and then just literally rip it out. And um, I think it was Michelangelo who said that, you know, my job, that the art is already in that block of marble. My job is to give it life, is to let it, to free it, right? Mm. And, um, and maybe, maybe that's a great way to look at what we do, that, that God's given us unique gifts in us. And our job is to find it and, and carve it mm. and let it out. And that's not just the hard marble, the hard stone. It's this beautiful spiritual power. Um, the more we dig down to the marble, we get connected to this source. And, uh, and then we get unstoppable, you know. Then no level of negativity or evil can stop us because we know we're connected to who we were supposed to be always. Was there ever a moment where you hit rock bottom in the sense that you were defined by the fame, by the story that everybody was kind of imposing onto you, that you're great, you're the best. Was there ever a moment where you lost perspective and then you bounced back up? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just, <laughs> when you miss a field goal, Sergio, it is so intensely clear that you failed, mm. uh, to use that word that we don't really like. <laughs> and I would wake up in the middle of the night trying to dream the ball through and I remember against Cleveland, um, and it was Marty Schottenheimer's return to Cleveland after 10 years there, and he's now our coach with the Chiefs. It's unbelievably cold, and, the, and it was, you know, a, literally a foot of mud and terrible conditions. And I missed three field goals, officially two, because one was called back because they were offside. And I couldn't understand why they didn't go through. It really blew me away. And I took full responsibility of it, for it and felt just crushed. Because I'd let my team down, even though I'd kick a field goal uh, with four minutes left to tie it. So we didn't even lose the game. We, did, we tied. We went to overtime. But I missed my kicks. I let down my team. And um, 
there was a cartoon in the Kansas City paper that made me look like a spring was coming out of my head, like one of those jack-in-the-box, as if I'd lost it. And I'd started the game as most accurate kicker in NFL history at about 77, 76, 77%. Wow. I kicked 86% after that. And I led the NFL in rushing the next year and in rushing, listen to me, led the NFL in, in scoring the next year. And I had 24 field goals in a row, then 21, then 22 for 24. I took my game to a new level because that failure was so painful. <laughs> I had to dig, I had to dig deeper. I had to, you know, I think do that mental work so that I, I knew I could stay in here and not let the outside control it. And I just loved the work. I, I got stronger and, um, and the great part about that was the Chiefs, who'd been kind of up and down and mediocre in the 80s, we became a perennial playoff team and almost went to the Super Bowl one game away. And not too far from Toronto, by the way, and they're in Buffalo. <laughs> Good old Buffalo. Um, but, you know, there were times like that when I played with the Jets. It was, you know, our team was terrible. And, it was, and I had an injury, which I found out later was misdiagnosed. And I felt like I was leading, you know, I didn't want to. Um, let my team down. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's also important to recognize, like I said to people, and there's too much to go into now, but I do wish I'd stayed in Kansas City because I think my ego got in the way. So I look at that as a lesson. Don't let your ego get in the way mm. of of knowing where the real juice is in life. And that's a constant work, you know, whether you're an Alcoholics Anonymous or, you know, we all have our little petty addictions to we love recognition, we love feeling important, but getting your ego out of the way so you stay creative, stay cre creating new things. And that's where we stay young. That's where the real juice is because maybe your artwork five years ago isn't nearly what it could be. Right. You're just growing as a human being. Where did you find that, um, that joy or calm in those key clutch moments? Were you ever... Was fear ever a motivator or were you always because, <laughs> because I would run on the field sometimes literally going, Oh my God, holy, <laughs> holy shit. I can't believe it. this is the scariest thing in the world. You know, what am I doing? This is the scariest job ever. But then there'd be the other voice because of the training and the hard work to say, shut up, stick with your discipline. Let's do it. Stop thinking so much. And I love the analogy. Uh, I got better game winning field goals the longer my career went because I, I knew where to put my mind and to get it out of the way. In scientific terms, if we're self-conscious, the part of the brain that governs the large muscle groups takes over and we lose our, our touch. We lose, lose our deafness. Mm. We lose the snap that will crack a whip even though you're only 110 pounds versus the person that can bench press 700 pounds and squat 1,000 pounds but cannot whip something. Why is that? Because it's a part of the brain that has all these sequences that are beyond conscious thought and releasing that is where the true talent is you know the natural speed the natural ability to jump to kick or whatever those natural abilities are so i would approach the ball as a great analogy and i'd say as i'm coming in because remember the ball's not spinning for at most two tenths of a second before you kick it mm -hmm. so i'm i'm planting my left foot and i would say left foot like line it up right at the target and then explode that was the word that worked for me wasn't trying to kill it. It was to just release, attack it. Mm. Don't be self-conscious. Don't try to be too perfect. Being too perfect gets in the way of greatness. Man, that is so true. And, and that's true for anything. It's if I'm, when I approach creativity, if I'm nervous or stressed, it, it just doesn't flow. It doesn't, I love being on set. It's yeah. 
I'm Zen. It's my happy place. You know, it's life that I don't do so well, but like yeah. everything else when I'm on set, man, that's, that's the, when they call it in flow or in the zone. Yeah. And it goes back to your point about the joy. It's just like, just loving it, you know? And I, I have a feeling I haven't been on your set, but I have a feeling the great directors, right? It is really a pure form of leadership because you have to get the crew and all the actors to see and feel your vision and be on the same page, uh, not just on the script, but also on the same page here. Absolutely. So there's that feeling like we're all in, we're all in the flow together. That to me is the purest, most beautiful form of leadership because um, nobody gets to be a great leader doing it by themselves. It's, it's getting others to see that and feel it. Our champions for the homeless tomorrow, what's so beautiful is um, I used to think because I was rejected, we haven't mentioned this, I was rejected by eight teams 11 times before I made it. Wow. Um, you know, I used, to, I used to think that I had to put my head through a wall to make things happen. And now I try to listen more and say, where is there no obstacle? Where is there this release? I can push, mm. you think of the wall, you know, in, in those detective films and they find the little compartment in the wall and then it unlocks the big door. Sort of like that, where where is there just receptivity? And Champions for the Homeless, we started with 30 volunteers, and it's grown to four, 500 volunteers. Now, with COVID, we went down to 15. We still made Phoenix the first city in the country, if not North America, to provide free rapid COVID, uh, testing for the COVID testing for the homeless. That's amazing. And now we're back up to 60. And frankly, tomorrow we might be closer to 100. But everybody has to wear a mask, and they get they're all tested for you know their temperature and all that. But Everybody gets this sense that there's something special here that is so much more about what Thanksgiving really should be. And to see the kids when they, um, you know, help somebody that used to look to them as a piece of furniture, mm. uh, you know, abandoned furniture on the, on the street. And now they're living, breathing human beings. And the light in the eyes of some of the homeless that have had everything taken from them. What a lesson that is, too, that they know... Everything can be taken from them, and yet they still have dignity. They still have joy. They still have humor. They still have wisdom. And so it's a beautiful exchange of energies there. And by doing it now for 16 years with 57 events, um, I think what it's done is a lot of people that were retired realized, I don't feel happy. I'm still all this wisdom I had from being successful, but I'm not doing anything with it. I'm playing golf or whatever it is you do out here in Scottsdale. And being able to make sure you wire, rewire that back into something is beautiful. And then if you can get your kids to see that too, or your grandkids, I love to have some of the kids who are now, let's say that they've been doing it for four or five years, get them to do the interview on TV. And what does that do to a 12-year-old who can articulate the message just as beautifully? How do they see themselves after that, right? They become an advocate in a beautiful way. Um, and what does that do for their parents? And the pride to see their kids figuring those things out. Um, and we'll have a couple teams there tomorrow, you know, like 10 members of a couple different football teams and softball teams and things like that. And uh, it just does my heart so good. And I did tell them, this is, this is the best thing you've ever done in your life. I'm just going to tell you right now, you're going to remember today because you put yourself in that place of looking people you've never met in the eye and letting them know they're truly loved. They're just as important as you. Maybe not more important, but they ain't left less important. They're just as important. Today, maybe they are more important. And uh, that exercise is so good for you know athletes coming out of a narcissistic environment, getting over your narcissism. Some, some of my athletic friends, pro athlete friends hate that word, but you know, 
the culture now with Instagram and with TikTok and all that stuff is so narcissistic. And Absolutely. so being able to rechannel it, reframe it, um, where you're sowing the seeds for, you know, much more lasting sense of peace and presence and happiness. What was the uh, transition like for you kind of like moving out of professional sports? Cause yeah. it's like being in the army. It's like, you know, my friend was undercover for 40 years and just being a civilian was the hardest, you know, the PTSD and all that. When your identity is so wrapped up in your job and your title, how did you transition and what advice do you have for others that are doing it? Well, it's, it's a process, right? Like I said about Arthur Mail, I'll get it better tomorrow. And so when it's so funny, I, I still have so many people go, you know, I really don't know football. I don't like football. And I go, great. You know what? The times I hate football too. I love football, but the time it doesn't matter. Let's talk about art. Let's talk about movies. Let's talk about books. Let's talk about yeah. history. Let's talk about politics. Let's talk about music. I mean, let's talk about anything else. It's okay. I am not crushed by that, please. But it's so funny. People think that's the case and not just you create other ways to use those lessons. And then, of course, when you remember those mentors, your father, my dad, Sidney Lowry, who was so humble that he, you know, no one knew that he was head of station for the CIA. And, uh, you know, the risk he took every day and, and, and the contribution he made back when the CIA was uh, more, shall we say, even more idealistic. Mm. You know, the idea of service still exists today, but let's just say those early days, uh, there was a purity of purpose because we were so fresh from the war and all the sacrifice and all yes. the death and all the loss and the pain. And also the notion of evil uh, exemplified and embodied in those death camps. You know, who are we fighting? Um, and by the way, there's an evil out there today. I mean, just the way that certain dark energies go through social media, et cetera, without mm -hmm. getting uh, melodramatic. But let's continue to uh, hold up the people that take responsibility for their lives, that do great things in the world, uh, and that overcome their traumas, not with hate, not with violence, but with creativity, with love, um, and with phenomenal persistence, each in their unique way. Those are the heroes. Absolutely. There's so much divisiveness now, and I'm seeing it in families um, you know, during this pandemic. And I've also seen great acts of beauty and kindness and generosity. I've seen a lot of people grow. I, I feel like I went from being a boy to a man, like, you know, in 18 months, like life changed forever. And it's never, there's no such thing as going back to normal. But I think, um, you know, this discourse, this kind of political divide, especially in the US, it's, it's sad to see, but there's lessons there. I think through adversity, we have an opportunity to rise and become better. You know, I, it, it's very personal. My own twin sister, she, uh, she watches MSNBC and National Public Radio, and so she gets one part of the narrative. My thing is, whatever you listen to, make the effort, even though you probably won't like it, watch Fox News, watch the other storytellers, Bloomberg, yeah. watch BBC, get a variety of sources Absolutely. so that you, number one, notice stories that are not being told at all, number two, looking at details as well. So really, it's about critical thinking. We were educated to think critically, which means to make distinguish, to distinguish between those things that are always important, those things that are inaccurate, and those things that are not so important. Being able to, you know, make choices from the good to the great. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, when narratives are being uh, one dimensional, um, being able to ask what, where's this coming from? And once again, then we retreat to telling our own stories like you're doing. Um, and or doing, you know, stories with mm -hmm. 
Native American stories, you know, rather than critical race theory, rather than getting into politics, I, let's get to what the real message is, which is just, let's just tell the stories of everyone, the winners, the losers, you know, let's make sure that we help everyone see the full range of the stories of history. That's important. And that way we're teaching people to think for themselves independently, but also in thinking for themselves, um, sharing what are their core values. And if it's around creativity and service and, and courage and persistence, uh, pretty much most of the time, good things will come from that. Absolutely. And it's, it's going right down deep into the, into our core humanity. And when we met at that gala, that's what I felt in the room is that nobody was talking about their political stripes, you know, uh, COVID. Yeah. I didn't hear any conversations about any of that. Yeah. It was all about how can we serve and how can we make the world a better place and seeing people, um, step up and, and really live that, that through, uh, was really inspiring to see that. You know, what a great analogy, right? American Foundation for the Blind. So here's a great story for you. So Nicole Jeffords was a senior at ASU, Arizona State. And I was working uh, a little bit with Dr. Robert Ashcraft. They have an incredible philanthropy leadership program there. And they assigned me to mentor her. So she, this is 20 years ago. So she's like, I don't know if I can make a difference. She's legally blind. She's blind, period. And I said, you know what? You've got incredible energy, Nikki. Just stick with it, and you're going to get really good at it, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. Fast forward 14 years, and I'm at the American Foundation for the Blind Institute here in Phoenix, and I loved being given a tour and seeing the way the architecture was designed for classrooms of people that couldn't see and how they taught. And, And she came up to me and said, hey, do you remember me? Well, I'm director here of development for the American Foundation for the Blind. Wow. So that was six years ago. She comes up to me at the American Foundation for the Blind with a woman helping her over because she's blind, a woman helping her to my table. And I, I ended up crying my eyes out for, because here's Nikki Jeffers, who's now the head of a program to help uh, find employment for disabled and blind people with the Department of Education that has a 35 billion dollar fund wow and she's running it and she said you are the reason that i'm here today i'm like no i'm not i just helped you see what was already in you but it was like oh my god and she actually is the one unbeknownst to me who'd introduced sean callagy who was the one that really made this afb 100th gallery such a success introduce him to the head of the American Foundation for the Blind. Wow. So how about things go full circle? And that was that night she came up to you that night at the at the gala? That night. Wow. That night at my table. Wow. And so I then took her over and introduced her to Sean and just said, you realize we've known each other for 20 years. And so it felt like, you know, things had gone full circle. So there's the other part of it is going back to the Robert Bly analogy of the mentor there's a mystical part to it. There's a karmic part to it. There's a law of attraction part to it where you never know when, but suddenly people will come back to you and say, you were the reason. I was in, um, I was having brunch in Kansas City and I get tears in my eyes because it's just so beautiful. That's why I love my life. There's a guy in a sweatshirt about 20 feet away. And when my friend gets up to leave for brunch, he walks, this other person walks over and says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute. I said, sure. He said, you spoke to me with Kevin Ross, who was a teammate when I was in a little league football program and in Kansas City, and you were playing for the Kansas City Chiefs and you inspired me. My mother was in prison. I didn't know where my dad was and I felt hopeless and, you know, alone. And 
I decided to, with my life, to buy a house on a block in the middle of Kansas City and devote it to people coming out of prison so they had a place to live, so they had a roof over their head, so they had some sense of hope and stability. He said, now I own every house on that same block. And I took care of my mom and all these other people. And I just want to thank you for being there 20 whatever years ago. You know, how can I not feel so blessed Wow! and think that's what it's about? So it's not about one outcome. It's about putting out a thousand, you know, throwing a thousand uh, pieces of creative spiritual mud at the wall and some of it will stick you never know what it will and and you're planting seeds another analogy right mm. you plant, you're planting spiritual seeds in people you never know if and when it will blossom it will sprout but just keep putting it out and beautiful things will happen and then people will come back and remind you which is my favorite word mm. refresh the mind remind you why you're here yeah certainly with life and all the noise we we sometimes forget our purpose. And when you forget your why, none of it makes sense. Easy to get lost. Yeah. What, um, what was your relationship with the real life Jerry Maguire? Let's talk about Lee a little bit (laughs) and, uh, you know, the personality, the man behind the myth and the, you know, the, the, one of the most famous movies of all time. Yeah. Well, Lee and I communicate almost every week. Uh, I hope to see him this weekend, actually, when I'm going to Orange County. Um, that's another mentor, right? That's somebody that when you surround yourself, the different levels of a mentor, he's also a friend, he was an agent, but those core values are so strong. And it was the first agent, as it comes out in the movie, played by Tom Cruise, you know, he wants to make sure that agents are branding themselves as people that had this enormous opportunity and obligation to get their sports icons to do something to thank the schools and the parents and the communities that helped them. Wow. And Lee was the first to consistently say that. And um, he himself would admit he had a, an alcohol issue and addiction issue. And uh, he's come back after 10 years away stronger and, and we are closer than ever. And we had to say goodbye to each other for a little bit. And uh, now it's even more strong and beautiful than it's ever been because we're so clear that this is where the good stuff is. And if you look at his um, clients, um, Patrick Mahomes being one and Tua, I can't pronounce his last name, Tua Log, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with Miami, um, they both are very clear about family, about community, about contribution. And that's catching. You know, it really is. So uh, Lee is um, somebody that embodies that. And whether it's Trey Aikman, Steve Young, uh, Warren Moon, all these incredible athletes that he helped inspire just to, sometimes it's just reminding them Mm. to use that word again. Don't forget who helped you get here. And that creates that, what I call generational wealth, not just financial wealth, but generational wealth, seeing this continuity of the most important things that will ever, that will always matter. So Lee, Lee's played a great role in we hope to do more to get more, more and more athletes mm. to do great things out there. Yeah, I, I obviously I don't know Lee, but I I saw him that night, and what I observed is this kind of like comfort in his own skin. Like he just been there, done that. And I wonder if some of that is innate. If he was just born with that gift of understanding human psychology, or if he developed that at some point. Well, he he will always say that his father and mother, uh, you know, just kept telling him, "Your obligation is to." make the world a better place and do something with this. And so he's, and both of us have lost our parents. So it becomes so clear 
you know, like, what did I learn from them? What is important? And I'm not going to get out of here alive either. Mm -hmm. So what am I going to do? So I have no regrets. And um, he's created a new language. Uh, Others might imitate it, but he's the real deal. And uh, I love working with him to help the next generation. I'm hoping to work with Jamaican youth, Native American youth, the next generation of athletes in general that have an opportunity. Football, just a little statistics, football, American football, particularly the National Football League, is four times more popular. And I love baseball and basketball, but four times more popular. And as media gets more diluted in terms of so many segmentations of the audience, Mm -hmm. and now everybody, you know, you have potentially 7 billion individual TV stations, right? Certainly millions of them. Um, Football remains one of the few magnets for attention. So you have this uh, disproportionate increase in the potential of athletes to to sell a story that matters. And some of them are making good choices, Mm. some not so good, but um, it is a great opportunity out there. Um, And most of them will realize at some point, hopefully sooner than later, because you're young to be an athlete, right? That they'll get to some of those mountaintops and it won't feel so fulfilling Mm. if they haven't done that work. So people like Lee help reinforce that. Learn that lesson now. Don't realize when you're 40 or 50 or 60 or 70, you did all this work, you even achieved great things, and it still feels empty because you forgot that other part of how you bring others into your family Hmm. and also thank them as well. It's amazing. Uh, Great, great advice. And and just just to end off, there's some kid out there in some suburb with a dream he's never met, you know, an all-star sports celebrity in his life. What advice do you have for that kid out there who might feel a little lost but has some kind of passion inside him or her? What advice do you have for them? Well, with persistence and with um, an open mind to finding the the jewels, the treasures in you, um, you're just going to get better. You're going to get better and better and better. And you will have unique gifts that set you apart from everyone else. That's crucial. Because by knowing you're unique, uh, you'll connect to your power and you'll become more of a, a creative fortress. You'll be able to protect what is beautiful inside you while you're pushing out great energy to do great things. And most of it is creativity, focus, and great passion and commitment. Um, David McElhenney, I mean, all of these great mentors, I wrote him. He was the Episcopal chaplain at Dartmouth and he went to UVA eventually. And I wrote him, and I was giving up a job working for the Senate Commerce Committee. I was the only non-attorney with uh, Christine Wilkes. Um, There were 11 attorneys and us. Great job on a Senate committee. And my life was going to go in this direction. And uh, now suddenly I've chosen to try one more time, my 12th time. And I'm going against the greatest kicker in the history of the game, Jan Stenner, who'd been my idol. I feel like, did I just blow it? I wrote a letter to him and said, you know, I'm just wondering what is... What's eating at me right now? And I got it right before the third pre- the second preseason game. And I'm being competing and being charted by Clark Hunt, who's now the owner for the Chiefs, who was a 16-year-old ball boy uh, for his father, Lamar Hunt, who's charting us every day. And um, David wrote me back and he said, you know, Nick, you've always had these choices in life, these roads that you can go. And this will this turned around everything I'd ever heard because so much. And my friend Tony Robbins would say, you know, 
the decisions in life and the Greek to cut off from other opportunities so you can really be committed. But David said something I'd never heard before and it made all the difference in the world. He said, actually, it's not, listen to me, young man, wherever you are, it's not the decisions in life. It's the energy you're willing to put into whatever you decide to do. Now, why is that so crucial? Because if you're fully committed and you throw everything into it and you have nothing to regret because you put everything into it, and if it's wrong, you won't spend any time wasting time in regret thinking, well, if I worked a little harder, stayed a little longer. No, that was a door you opened and now you've closed it and you can keep it closed and move on. That lesson is so important. Rather than dwelling on the past, you can then move on to what you know is probably a better choice. So the ability to focus and commit and with great passion, you know what? It may not be perfect, but by doing it, you'll realize more quickly, more clearly for a lifetime, what is your gift? What is a better choice? And that is great. So many people will be sitting on their Monday night football couch or whatever it is saying, I could have been, I love that scene with, with uh, Marlon Brando and on the waterfront. Mm-hmm. He's a you know former washed up uh, boxer who, I could have, I could have been somebody. <laughs> I could have been a contender. And, and so yeah. many people are in that suspended animation of guilt and regret rather than I'll rephrase it. I've never done this before. Imagine Marlon Brando's character saying, you know, I might have been a contender, but I didn't give it all I had. Now I'm committed to what I know I'm great at, and I love this, and I have no regrets because I gave it all I had back then, and it wasn't right. I would not have been a contender. I'm a contender as a human being in this field because I gave it everything I had. That's a much better place to be for your life. And then only good things will happen, and you are opening up a doorway, much wider doorway, to wisdom. And great things happen when you know more clearly what really matters in life. Man, beautiful. Thank you so much. Great words of wisdom, and I could do this all day, man. You're like uh, a mentor and a friend and, and a legend. And uh, you know the work that you're doing now is, is just so meaningful and beautiful. And thank you, thank you so much for the inspiration. Well. Uh, you know, namaste means I see the light in you. So it's only because I see the light in you, you see the light in me. And so if I could ever help you with anything, you know, I'm there, brother. And anybody out there, let's keep telling the stories that need to be told because, you know, there is beauty in you and power in you. And all you have to do is see people like Sergio to know there is great hope to make this world a much better place. Thank you so much, sir. It's uh, It was such an honor and a pleasure as always. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Sergio.